Well, our reading this morning is John chapter 3 and verse 1 through to verse 15. And it's the account of the visit by night of Nicodemus to speak to the Lord Jesus. Uh, and in speaking to him, here's all about the new birth or being born again. And that's the subject that I would like to talk on this morning, the subject of the new birth. And we read in John 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You were Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with this passage, or a great many of us will be of that, I am sure. But what did Jesus mean by this expression, born again? You know, as the passage uh, shows, it's so important to be clear on the meaning of the terms we use. Jesus meant one thing, and Nicodemus meant another thing. And so they weren't really communicating, although in the end we trust Jesus did communicate because Nicodemus appears later as someone who, it seems, believed. But getting our terms right, understanding each other and what we mean by the words we use is crucial. It reminds me of a conversation I had with my eldest daughter when she was quite young. Now, she's 31 now, so this is when she was about nine, eight or nine. And she came home from school and she said to me, Dad... And I hope this isn't going to offend anybody if I share it. It's a bit risque, I suppose. Dad, what's the difference between a kiss, a smooch, and a snog? <laughs> now, I, I, this is the truth. This is what I was confronted with when she came back from primary school, I might add. And my first thought was, what are they teaching them down there? You know, what's the difference between a kid? So I started out, I thought, better she gets it from me than anyone else. Although I don't know why when I reflect on that. So I said to her, well, darling, a smooch is a little kind of, it's a little kind of kiss on the cheek, a little peck. And a kiss is, is like where lips touch. And I said, and a snog is what naughty teenagers do. 
Now, I thought that was a pretty good answer. That kept me safe. But she turned round to me and she said, and there was this impish look in her eye, uh, she said to me with, you know, she said, Dad, you are so silly. And I thought, what? She knows more about this than I do, I thought. She says, no. She says, kiss begins with a K and smooch and snog begin with an S. <laughs> now, she knew what she was doing. She had that look, you know, that she knew what was going on. So what did Jesus mean when he taught about the new birth? There are only four things I want to share with you, and to me and to the passage, they're critical. And the first is this, the necessity of the new birth, the absolute necessity of the new birth. And that necessity seems at first to be a very practical one. Jesus says without the new birth, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Its workings are incomprehensible to us. We cannot understand them. And Nicodemus was Israel's teacher. And yet, says Jesus, you don't understand these things. And not only is the kingdom incomprehensible, it is also inaccessible to us. Jesus says without the new birth, no one, no matter who they are, can enter the kingdom of God. It is inaccessible. We must have this new birth. And it's not just for those who may happen to need it while others may not. For Jesus says all need it. All of us need it. Not even religious people have an advantage here. Think about this. Think about who Nicodemus was. He was a Pharisee. He was a recognized expert on all things religious. He politely calls Jesus rabbi. Most of the establishment would have called him the very reverend doctor, and yet he wasn't even born again. And this tells us one thing. The new birth is an absolute necessity. I mean, no amount of religious, cultural, or personal advantage will compensate for the need of it. One can spend their whole life in religious circles and still not have it. And so the first thing Jesus teaches about the new birth is its necessity. Now, I don't know whether you've heard of the revivalist preacher John Wesley. I'm sure you have. Well, another one that went along with him and sometimes in other places on horseback too was George Whitfield. And George Whitfield, wherever he went, was preaching on the new birth. And someone who had become a bit of a follower, a bit of a groupie, went up to him and said, why are you always preaching? You must be born again. And George Whitfield looked at him and said, because you must be born again. He wanted him to see and to know that this was an absolute necessity. Well, this brings us then to the second truth that Jesus taught. And that is the spirituality of this new birth. And now we're getting to what it actually means, the spirituality. You see, it's clear Nicodemus doesn't understand Jesus. He interprets him literally and physically. In verse 4, he refers to entering a second time into a mother's womb. He's confused. 
You know, Jesus in John's gospel, maybe if you've been reading it, you've noticed this. He always struggles trying to communicate uh, spiritual things to people. I mean, in chapter 2, his hearers failed to appreciate that the temple he would raise was his body. In chapter 4, the lady thinks the living water can be drawn from a literal well with a literal bucket. And so Jesus wants to make it clear the new birth is not physical. It is a spiritual work. Listen to these words. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Now, this always reminds me when I used to teach. It was a series of science lessons called Living Things. And we would explore together, myself and the children, what it means to say we're alive. And we came to see that living things breathe, they eat, they grow, they produce waste, and of course, they produce living things. They produce after their own kind. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But it's also true in the dimension of the spirit. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who performs this work of new birth. It's quite different to what we're used to. Now, what is this work? What is he getting at? Well, Jesus explains. He says, verse 5, No one can, can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now, what a strange association of ideas. The water and the spirit, what's he getting at? When Jesus, Jesus uses terms like this, he generally draws them from the Old Testament. That's like his source book. And then we have to ask ourselves, so is there anywhere in the Old Testament where water and spirit are mentioned together? Was that informing what Jesus meant? And in fact, there is a place where they're mentioned together. It's Ezekiel chapter 36, and the subject is the new work of grace that God will perform in his people in the days of the Messiah. And so it's obviously relevant. Here are the words. I will gather you, and I will sprinkle clean water on you and cleanse you from all your impurities. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. So there they are together. And the water is clearly a symbolic reference to purification. It's a cleansing from all impurities. It's the removal of sin. And Jesus probably expected Nicodemus, being an expert in religious things, to realize that, that, that for example, in temple practices, ceremonial waters were used and make the connection between water and the cleansing of sin and forgiveness. Now, what about the Spirit? Well, it says when the Spirit is given, Ezekiel seems to be saying he will move people to follow God's decrees. In other words, he will motivate and incline those he acts upon to want to follow God's path. It's like the giving of a new heart that gives rise to new desires, new aspirations that one did not previously have. And these new desires, our hunger, or appetite, is for God, his word, and his will. Now, can we see what Ezekiel is saying? It's not just that we start making different lifestyle choices for God 
and the things of God, it's that for the first time in our lives, we want to. We want to. You know, if I can use an everyday analogy to help, it's not just that we've decided to try different foods. It's that our appetite has been changed to make us want and enjoy different foods. Indeed, foods we once found distasteful. And so the person who has experienced the new birth finds themselves with a new hunger for God, which they can't explain. It's like being born again. <laughs> That's what's being said. And this is why I refer to the spirituality of the new birth. The work of the Spirit performs, it's a renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says to Titus. And if we ask why we must be born again, it's quite simple. Genuine Christianity is not something we men or we women can do. However religious we are, however long we've been going along to churches and listening to sermons, there isn't a one of us that can make a Christian. Only God can make a Christian. Only God can birth anew so that each person he does birth anew becomes a new spiritual creation. And it's a fantastic teaching. A man or a woman cannot make themselves Christian by their religious activities. Only God can do that. A man or a woman may be very religious. They may have grown up in a church. They may have been baptized. They may attend regularly. They may take part in worship. Heavens, they may even lead worship. They might even enjoy discussing religious matters and point to these things, if you like, as irrefutable proof that they are now Christians. But Christianity, the Christianity Jesus is speaking of here, consists of what God does and only what we do as an instinctive response to this new life that he births in us. Do we see the difference? It's quite profound. The Lord is talking about working at the motivational level of our lives so that we start making choices and enjoying and doing things, not only that are new to us, but at one time we found utterly distasteful. But we find this new life in us, and it must be satisfied. It just must. You know, living organisms don't only perform behaviors, they display signs of life. And that's what the Christian is, someone with life within them that God has placed there. J.I. Packer helpfully compares the spiritual signs of life with the physical signs of life to help us understand new birth. For example, he talks about a newborn baby and says the way a newborn baby cries instinctively. Now, you know, when a new, I remember when my eldest daughter was born, and I was standing there, and I, you know, I wasn't that old, and I thought being the big man, I would just cope with this, and it would all happen, the nurse would hand me the baby. Um, but of course, when the baby is first born, everything is out of your head, and you're listening for what? The sound of its voice, aren't you, as it cries. That's what you're listening for. And do you know, the newborn, the spirit-born individual cries instinctively. They cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit moves them to want to relate with their God and talk to their God and call to their God. And that's profoundly more important to them than all their religious behaviors. They're responding to a new instinct God has given. And if you think about it, a baby also sucks instinctively. I remember we struggled with my second daughter because she wasn't eating as well as she might. And there was a little bit of kind of weight loss rather than weight gain. And of course, we're all stressed, and especially my wife. I mean, I'm pr putting it from the male perspective, which is, you know, remote, but, but the one that matters most. <laughs> but I remember that. The baby sucks, you know, and the newborn Christian hungers for spiritual food. Milk, then the meat of God's word. If you're wanting to know, am I born again, then do you cry instinctively to God? Do you cry, Abba, Father? Is it vital to you that you need to relate with this God? And then secondly, you know, have you this hunger for God's word, the milk and meat of God's word? Peter uses those phrases, and he does so because the word answers the profound appetite in our hearts to hear what the Lord wants to say to us. We might cry to him in prayer, but more importantly, we want to hear from him in his word. Isn't that true? Please tell me that's true. Is that true? Yes, because these are signs of life rather than just behaviors we've learned by going along to church for years. So how important that is. And then, of course, you know, a baby moves instinctively, doesn't it? It turns its, its head and it flexes its limbs. And so, too, the spirit-born Christian also moves instinctively as they follow his or her master, Jesus. There's no such thing as an inactive Christian. Not at all. I mean, you know, the body is, 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 is the image Paul uses for the church. And the one thing about a body is it's active, isn't it? It's when it becomes inactive that we worry about the signs of life. And so it is for the believer that's born again. They want to be involved in the activity of the kingdom. It's not enough just to be busy. It's certainly not enough just to come and to sit on a chair in a church and sing all the appropriate songs and words at the appropriate time. No, they want to be part of the movement of God's Spirit in this place and in the world around us. Isn't that so? And a baby also rests instinctively in its mother's arms. And so the Spirit born instinctively rests in knowing that underneath are the everlasting arms of their God. Not mum's arms or dad's arms, but God's arms. And when we're born again, we instinctively know that this Father is there watching over us, watching for us. As it says in Psalm 139, going before us and following behind us to protect us from the harm of our past. That's what it is to be born again. That's what it is to have not only one's behaviors changed, but one's heart and motivation and longing for God transformed. And so, do you know, when someone becomes a Christian and the Spirit moves in, because that's basically what it is, the Spirit taking up residence in our hearts, not only do we become a mystery to other people, we become a mystery to ourselves. We can hardly believe we are the way we are. We can't understand why it is we want to tell others about Jesus, but we do. <laughs> and we can't understand why it is this book that once was covered in dust 
and occupied the least accessible shelf in our houses is now pulled down and there's no dust on it. And we're even starting to underline verses because they matter to us, because God's speaking to us through these verses. Do you know this experience? Do you know this? Do you know the Spirit of God in your heart making you more than the sum of all your visible behaviors, but having changed you and transformed you from within so that you now cry, Abba, Father. And when you do, the Father is pleased to receive you because you are his son and you are his daughter. Isn't it incredible? Abba, Father. That's what it is to have come through to new birth. Ben Witherington, he's an American scholar that I just enjoy reading a lot. Um, he went abroad. It was the Holy Land. And he was sitting at the end of a pier writing his PhD, you know, as you do, you know. But as he was writing, his attention was taken away. And he heard a young child running and shouting. And the young child ran past him and further down the jetty. And the young child was crying, Abba, Abba, Abba. And so, of course, Ben Witherington, being attuned to this kind of thing, turned round and watched the young boy jump off the jetty into the arms of a man standing in a boat. Abba was his father. And he jumped off that pier knowing that his father would catch him. Why? Because his father loves him. Loves him. Abba, Abba. And that's what the Spirit does when we're born again. We instinctively know that the Father loves and cares and watches over us and has sent his Son to die for our sins so that nothing needs separate us from that care and from that love. And so we cry, Abba, Father. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it just a bit nice? <laughs> What a, what a, what a, what a, what and, and then the next thing, and I'm kind of rushing on because I get caught up on this. I feel this is really the bottom line, new birth, isn't it? It really is the bottom line. And the next thing Jesus talks about is the mystery of the new birth. He turns around and he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, being born again is so totally a work of God, it's within the mystery of his sovereignty. He's actually saying, this is God's thing, Nicodemus, not yours. Now, I don't know what you think about that. It seems a strange evangelistic strategy, doesn't it? To tell someone they need to be born again, but then tell them they can't. I mean, that is a peculiar thing I feel in the passage. You know, when Jesus says, you know, it's a work of God, it's a mystery, it's like the wind, and you need it, Nicodemus, but you can't do anything about it. How strange. You'd have thought Nicodemus would have been standing there going, well, great, you know. But then Jesus goes on to talk about the availability of this new birth. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and listen, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's like Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you cannot birth yourself again. Don't even try. But look at me, Nicodemus. Forget all your respectability. 
Forget, you know, all your religious accomplishments, all your degrees and higher degrees and all the rest of it. Forget all that. Look at me. Trust me for a grounding and a confidence before God. Trust me as you see me later hang upon the cross bearing your sins. And then as you see me raised up from the dead and alive and able to pour out my spirit upon you that you may have eternal life, new birth, born again. Trust me. Look away from yourself and look only to me, Jesus Christ. And as you shed all that silly faith and dependence upon the things around you and look only to me and receive me as your Lord and your Savior, you will know the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will know the gift of eternal life and you will know yourself born again. Incredible, isn't it? Incredible. Do you know, I recall, and I'll finish on this, I recall when I was 20, with about three months left in the Royal Navy to do. And I went out, um, I share this when it's a first preach somewhere, you know, and I went out with the guys, the other sailors, we went down Union Street in Plymouth and we had a lot of drinks. But I decided that night I didn't want to get a taxi back, I wanted to walk back. And I'd had quite a bit to drink, I thought it'll sober me up. I called into a little cafe, and when I went into that cafe, I sat drinking coffee and ate a sandwich, and a young guy came and sat down at the same table with me. And to be honest, I felt a little bit threatened. I thought, what's going on here then? They started to chat about everyday things, but then he started talking about Jesus Christ. And I recall telling him, you've picked the wrong person here, mate. I'm from Northern Ireland. I know what religion can do. But then he started to talk about the Lord, and he said, if there was a God, would you want to meet him? And I thought, that's a very big question to say no to, isn't it? So I said, well, yes, of course I'd like to meet him if there was a God, but there isn't, so it's academic, isn't it? He says, well, let me pray for you, and let's see if God will show you himself. And he started to pray for me, and in my bleary-eyedness and confusion, he finished praying, and at that moment when I opened my mouth, I became profoundly conscious that not only he and I were there, but there was another present. Now, to this day, that has been the biggest mystery to me, but I know that it was the risen Lord Jesus. And I know that he draws near to every single one who comes to him wanting forgiveness and new life. Sometimes we're conscious of his presence. At other times, we're not very conscious of his presence. But when we come in sincerity to him and saying, Jesus, I don't really know what all this new birth thing is about, but I have this profound sense that I need it. When we come to him like that, asking for it, he draws near and he forgives and cleanses and he indwells and equips and empowers. And when he does that, our life is changed forever. A defining moment. And the Lord will never turn away any that come to him. Now, I never knew the name of that young man. I got up and hiccuped and burped and lit up another cigarette and went back to the ship. But you know, three weeks ago, I was preaching in Tillicultry Baptist and shared this story. And at the end of it, would you believe, a man walked up 
And he said to me, was it Plymouth? I said, yes. He said, was it Devonport? Yes. Was the cafe Aggie Westerns? Yes. He said, I went into that cafe six months before you, and that same young man shared the gospel, and I believed and received Christ, and it has changed my life forever. Can you believe that? That was just three weeks ago. Plymouth is 500 miles away. And there's another guy who received the Lord. And why am I sharing it? Because when you come in sincerity to the Lord, wanting the Lord to move into your life and take up residence and transform you and change you forever, he will. He will. And it's the most wonderful thing because it turns religious people into spiritually alive people. It turns dull and dead churches into powerhouses to know the living, reigning Christ in our lives. And therefore, you know, um, if there's any here and you feel you're on the edge of the kingdom, I want to encourage you with all my heart to draw near to a risen, living Jesus. We'll bring all your confusion and all your, 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 your lack of understanding and come to him and say, Lord, take up residence, own this life, exercise your life through it. Take me and use me. Forgive me and cleanse me, and he'll do it. Isn't that amazing? Our Father God, will you draw near to each one of us? Will you freshly infill us? Will you anoint us? Will you do such a work in our hearts that we become a mystery to ourselves, never mind to others? Will you lift us up and use us for the growth of the kingdom and the glory of Jesus? Will you allow us to know those defining moments when the Spirit convicts us of sin and yet takes us to the Savior to be forgiven and to be empowered? We ask all these things in your name and for your glory's sake. Amen. Amen.